Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm the lead pastor here. My privilege to be with you. Um, last week was pretty magical, wasn't it? Wasn't that just an incredible week? Yeah, we can, we can give, if, if we can applaud for anything, it's that. Um, and thank you to the many who contribute to that. And um, yeah, I've just been thinking about that all week. And, um, and I've been thinking about that with respect to this passage. Um, I heard sort of the groans and the hmms, and the, right? Like this, this passage is no joke. Um, this is Jesus at one of the moments of most kind of contention in his ministry. And it seems like this, the setting for this is um, he's in the midst of, of kind of a mob that is moving toward, you hear him saying, you are trying to kill me, you are trying to kill me. That seems, if you look deeply at what's going on, that seems literal. That seems like, yeah, this is one of those times where Jesus, I don't know if you heard it at the end, kind of barely escapes with his life. And it, it, uh, one of the things I was thinking about this week is I remember um, someone saying they had a friend who was, a, who was in law enforcement, who was a police officer, and they said uh, that the police officer would say, I'm very seldom intimidated by any individual that I come upon, but just about any mob you have to just be really careful with, right? Like mob mentality is a real thing. Um, and, the, and the strength of that and the contention of that and the sort of lawlessness um, that can result when there's sort of this fervor is part of what we're seeing here um, is that this crowd is now moving against Jesus in this, in this pretty radical way. Um, and so you, you got to have a sense of that setting. Like this is Jesus. He's cornered is basically what's happening here. And I don't know that there's a place, I was reading one of the commentators on this said, that it's hard to find a place where Jesus is more clearly kind of pleading with a crowd, pleading with a crowd to believe and understand what he's saying. And yet this crowd, they, they just can't hear it. And so if I were to, um, if I were to kind of tag this text, uh, entitle this sermon, it'd probably be something like, so the name of our series is Encountering Jesus. Because that's a lot of what's going on in the Gospel of John, is we're watching what happens when people encounter Jesus, these, these life-changing, life-transforming encounters. And in some ways, this, this provides the, the shadow side of that, the other side of that coin. And so I think what we have here are like three things that keep us from encountering Jesus. Three things that make it uh, difficult for us to fully embrace Jesus. Three ways in which we tend to reject the voice of Jesus in our lives. One of the reasons I'm just kind of trying to set the scene for where we're going here, because there's a lot of text to cover. We won't get to every single phrase and line, but I want you to get a, a sense of, of sort of the overall text. One of the reasons why I've been thinking about this text with respect to last week with the baptisms is just before we did the baptisms, I said something along the lines of... Um, Baptism follows conversion, not maturity in faith. Right? Like you, don't, you don't come to faith, ascend to a, a certain point of maturity, and then the reward is, okay, now we'll baptize you. Conversion follows baptism and the miracle of putting your faith in Jesus, and then maturity follows that. But maturity, um, growing in our understanding of what Jesus has called us to, growing in being like him, in walking with him, in obeying him, is a necessary part of the life of faith, right? It's not to, to belittle that. And right here in the first line, man, I, I felt like at some point this week, I was like, geez, there's a whole sermon in, in just this very first verse. 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So these are people who believe in Jesus. And he says, if you want to know if you're actually a disciple, you've got to abide in my word. Abide is this word that's used throughout the gospel of John that talks about sticking with, remaining in. It's a word that can just have a simple meaning of staying in someone's house, kind of hanging out with someone. He's saying, if you're really my disciple, you'll hang around long enough to listen to what I have to say and actually be changed by it. You'll stick with me. And so right in this verse, we have this clarity that says mere belief in Jesus does not guarantee that one is truly a disciple. Mm. And one of the things that I think has largely plagued the church, particularly the the sort of movement that we're a part of, the evangelical church in America, is a kind of easy conversionism, what the great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. This idea that, no, 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 I, I mentally assent to a few facts about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, and therefore that's enough. That is the category of people that Jesus is speaking to in this. And the first thing he says to them is, whoa, 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 if you abide in my word and hear his word, right? We think of his word and we think of this primarily. Here, he is talking about what I am saying right now, at least immediately. He, of course, has the scriptures in mind and all those things, but he's saying my teaching, what I'm saying right now, you've got to stick with what I'm about to say in order to truly be my disciples. And now here's what's incredible. Look at the very next verse. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Which you probably heard that line. Maybe you don't know that that line comes from Jesus, but those are his words. Check this out. Verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Check out what happens. These people believe in Jesus. He says, if you're truly my disciples, you're going to have to listen to what I'm about to say to you. You're going to have to abide in this. You're going to have to stick around long enough to actually hear what I'm saying. The very first thing he says sets them off. Whoa, I don't know about that, Jesus. That doesn't land on me well. I don't like the sound of that. And the first thing that he says is you need to be set free. The first thing he says lands on their ears, and immediately calls into question his whole sort of beginning line of this whole thing. All right, you're going to have to listen to what I have to say. You ready? This is what I have to say. You're enslaved. And they say, I don't like it. I reject it. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The very first thing that Jesus says to them is, you are enslaved and you need to be free. Now, notice that (laughs) what they respond is, we're children of Abraham, we've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, if you know your Bible, right, is that historically, physically accurate? No, right? Like, if you know the story of the Bible, it's like, no, this is actually your story, which suggests one of two things, right? The people of Israel were taken into slavery um, and, like, are currently under the oppressive Roman Empire, which suggests one of two things. Either there's sort of a denial going on here of them saying, no, 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 that's not our story, we don't embrace that. 
I think what's more likely is they actually fairly quickly grasp that Jesus is speaking at a spiritual level here. And they're saying, no, 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 we're children of Abraham. We worship the actual one and true God. How can you possibly say that we need to be freed from something at a deeper level? And maybe by now they're used to Jesus, right? Like one of the things we've seen throughout the Gospel of John is John is always working at two levels, what actually happened and, and the deeper meaning of, of what's happened. Maybe they've gotten used to that and they're saying, we know you're going a deeper, a level deeper. No, 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 we're in. We're in. We believe in God. How can you say that we're possibly enslaved? And Jesus says, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. Who practices sin? <laughs> Do you practice sin? Has anyone in here ever sinned? No. Good. Okay, so <laughs> people out there who sin, he's universalizing this. He's saying, look, the universal spiritual condition of humanity is an enslavement to sin. And how do I know? Because if you sin, that means you are choosing a different master, right? And look, this is Jesus' words here. It feels a little problematic. It felt a little problematic to them too. But he says, I have to speak with this level of shock in some ways to wake you up to your actual spiritual nature. And he says, if you practice sin, that means that you have a different master. It means that you are trusting something, the word of someone other than me and serving that word. And he said, so you're enslaved to it. And they say, we're not, we're not enslaved to anyone. And what's amazing about this is, right, they're speaking out of their particular uh, Jewish context, experience, national history, and all of those things. But I just can't believe as I was working through this interaction, this, I just can't believe how relevant it is to our cultural moment 2,000 years later in a totally different place. Because they say, we ain't enslaved. We don't have any master. And he says, oh, your life bears evidence otherwise. Because in the immortal words of Bob Dylan, right, you actually do have to serve somebody. Nobody, you're living for something. We all live for something. We have all enthroned something as God and we pursue that thing as God in terms of obeying it, in terms of believing that it will bring us salvation, in terms of placing our deepest hope in it. It could be popularity. It could be attractiveness. It could be your career. It could be a certain financial standing. It could be whatever. But the human machine is made to have something outside of it be its master. And they say, we don't like that. And 2,000 years later, we're still saying, I don't like the sound of that. The first step to getting free, Jesus said, is to confess to the reality that I don't just do sin. I'm enslaved to sin. I have no other choice but to sin. Woo! <laughs> and there is no culture, there is no one's stories into whom you speak that. And they go, that sounds amazing. Like, where do I sign on the dotted line, right? It's an insult. It really is. I remember uh, years ago when, when uh, my wife and I were still dating and, uh, and I was kind of far from the Lord and she wasn't a Christian, I was kind of coming back to my faith and we started talking about things. And I remember her saying to me, after like talking about like, oh, I think you need to be saved and all this stuff, is she finally stopped me. She was like, you know how offensive it is that you keep saying you need to be saved, you need to be saved. And I was like, 
what? But that's how we talk as Christians. She's like, yeah, that's weird and offensive, right? <laughs> and I think about that sometimes because I'm like, yeah, the stuff that gets you in is pretty wild. There's a, there's a commentator who says that there is a kind of reverse revival that Jesus is calling for here, and I love that. Revival is another weird word that we Christians use. But normally when we think of revival, we have in mind when people get serious about being holy, get serious about obeying God. And when you experience revival, you get your life together and you go out and you finally live for God. Revival. This commentator says that Jesus is calling for a reverse revival, that we would actually get serious about our sin and how enslaved to sin we are and move back into utter and total dependence on God. <laughs> and that's where true freedom starts. Because here's, here's what the rest of the New Testament says. You go to places like Romans 6, where Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, early Christian missionary and teacher, church planter, as he talks about this contrast, he says, once you were slaves to sin, he says what Christ comes and does is he pays the price of your freedom, and then allows you to be a slave to righteousness. You see, it's not that when you're a Christian that you have to obey God. It's that when you become a Christian, you get to obey God for the first time. And the question becomes, who are you serving? Think of it this way, right? Everything, we think of something like, um, think of a fish, right? Like a fish, because it's so common, we'll see this in just a second, to say true freedom is having no master and being able to do whatever I want to do, right? Like I'm so glad that Jalen enjoyed Little Mermaid, but I got a big bone to pick with Disney in general because that's the message. Like don't serve anyone, find your true inner self, find your voice, whatever it is, and once you find what that is, like serve that and that only and no one else. What's dangerous about that is that that is allowing the creation to decide its purpose. When the creation, when the creature has a creator, right? Like a fish can decide that it wants to live on land. Because, um, because you know, that's what's calling to them from the inside. And they watch Disney growing up, and they were like, yeah, but inside, I really want to be a part of that world. And it's like, cool fish, you go be a part of that world. The, the issue is that a fish is a creature, and it was created with gills, not with lungs that take in oxygen. So though it has chosen its freedom, it has actually chosen its destruction because it did not choose with reference to how it was created, Okay. Now, human beings, we want to say whatever is inside of me and the ability to express that is what my true freedom looks like, and that ignores the fact that we no less, in fact, infinitely more, but no less than a fish are created with a certain design. And so the question becomes, what did the designer create the human being for? And once we align to the creator's intention for us, the creator's design. That's where actual freedom comes from. Thus, it's not having no master, it's having the right master. 
verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. It's about to get very real. They answered him, Abraham is our father. They're like, oh, you're coming at Abraham? If only. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Abraham, Old Testament figure, most important thing about Abraham, God told him stuff directly. Abraham believed him. And his belief wasn't mere mental assent. He put action and obedience behind it. Right? This is the emphasis going back to the Apostle Paul. This is the emphasis of Paul whenever he brings up Abraham. Most important thing to understand about Abraham, when God speaks to Abraham, he doesn't merely believe, his belief becomes faith put into action. And Jesus says, if you were like your father that you're claiming, if your paternity was correctly identified as Abraham's kids, you would do what your dad did, which is listen when God speaks to you. You're doing something else. You're doing the works your father did. Who's their father? They said to him, check this out. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. We were not born of sexual immorality. You know what's most likely going on there? This is a shot at Jesus. This is, this is a shot at Jesus' sketchy origin story. This is a shot at, why were, why were you also like, always clarifying that Joseph wasn't like your, your actual father. What happened there? What's your mom's deal? What's the actual story there? They come at him. They say, you're the one who's got a sketchy background. Okay? It's getting very, very personal here. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now they're claiming God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I have I am here circled in my Bible because I think that this is the moment. To me, this is like Jesus' public Garden of Gethsemane moment, if you know what I mean by that. Garden of Gethsemane, night before Jesus is crucified, he has this agonizing private interaction with his father. He's saying, God, is there any other way to do this? This moment where he says, I've come from God. I'm telling you what God says. I'm here. Feels like the closest thing that we have to Jesus in privacy in the Garden of Gethsemane, taking that public and saying it in front of people. Going, I'm telling you, it's all true, right? Like Jesus, I think that we can have this image of Jesus as sort of this stoic person who is touched by nothing. The Garden of Gethsemane does, undoes that image, but also this undoes that image. He cared that these people were rejecting him. He wanted them to listen to him. He'll, you'll hear in just a second, not for his own glory. He's saying, if you're Abraham's kids, do what he did. God is speaking directly to you. I'm here. These are the words of God to you. Please don't turn back from them. Please don't align yourself with the wrong master, with the wrong father, because your father is speaking to you right now. And look, there's a very real sense in which, I don't know why you're here. Maybe, maybe you're not normally here. Maybe, maybe you're here a lot, and it's just been a while since you really listened to God. Hear Jesus' words here to go, no, I'm really speaking. Not through me. God is speaking in his word here. Jesus is just as much pleading with us today, saying, no, I'm really continuing to speak. And will you listen to what I'm trying to say to you? I came not of my own accord. He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? 
It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, he finally just says what, what he's been implying. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. There's two things Jesus says here. Back up in verse 37. He says, you seek to kill me because my word, there's this interesting word that's translated, finds no place in you. My word finds no place in you. It's it's this very interesting word in the original language that sort of means like, um, it can can mean, it's uh, probably the closest English word is, you can't contain it. You can't hold it. It, It's what's said of in the New Testament of like jars that contain a certain liquid in them. They're able to hold them in. There's another use of this word that speaks of something progressing, like like a stream, like a river that progresses Um, around and through obstacles. And he's saying, my word's not getting through. My word is leaking out. It it finds no place with you. He says later on, I loved how Rachel read this when we were doing the scripture reading in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. If the first reason why we don't encounter Jesus is because we don't like the idea that either we are enslaved or put another way, we don't like the idea that we have to serve somebody. The second reason why we don't encounter Jesus is because we simply tend to believe the cost is too high. The word of God comes into our life, the teaching of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the clear call to obey comes into our lives and it just leaks out. Or, or it can't push through certain resistance. Right here I'm thinking of, of like, uh, maybe some of you are, the parable of the sower that Jesus tells. Where, where skeed, seed is scattered um, all, all along uh, various places. And some of it takes hold, but so much of it dies. Because it can't take root because either there's resistance or there's hard soil. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And I think the particular thing that makes the cost feel too high is that at the end of the day, it's very similar to to Jesus' thought in in the first section, is we believe that to follow Jesus is primarily a loss of our freedom. We think it's a loss of our freedom. We think it is primarily a constraint on our lives and on our ability to do what we know is the best thing for us. Our definition of ultimate good and God's definition of ultimate good. I'm not talking about in some deep philosophical way. I'm talking about like on an everyday decision by decision basis are so often so radically at odds, are they not? What's good for me right now, what's going to satisfy me, what's joyful for me, and what God says I am going to do, because those things are in conflict, we think of choosing God's way as primarily restraint as primarily a loss of our freedom. Again, because our definition, I mean, 2,000 years ago, but our definition, especially now, and this is what's so interesting about our cultural moment. You know, I've been reading these 
these fascinating books um, about sort of how we arrived at this moment where we just so deeply believe that human flourishing comes from the absence of constraints on our lives. Like if we can, if we can clear all constraints, like then I can be free. And that is like so deeply in us. It's like so the air we breathe that we take it for granted that human cultures have always accepted this as the primary definition of freedom, which is actually like a very recent thing. It's not even like, I mean, if you dork out on this kind of stuff like I do, like it's not even really like a post-enlightenment thing. It even comes later than that. And, and partic particularly, um, particularly this, this idea that the, that the search for meaning is primarily an inward search. It's primarily a going deeper in. It's primarily, right, like we use words like self-discovery. That truly, 300, 400 years ago, honestly, in some places still on the globe, you would say that, and they'd be like, what in the world are you talking about, right? Like, um, but for us, it's just we're like, what other way is there to live? And if, and if we've drank that so deeply that we believe that, that the inward search that the inward path is the path to meaning and enlightenment and flourishing, then the words of Jesus, things like, if anyone would come after me, he has to pick up his cross, die to himself, die to the self-discovery, stop going inward and start moving outward in self-giving love toward others. How can you hear anything but constraint in that? How can you hear anything other than that sounds miserable? And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying once again, no, 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 something has you constrained. Something is determining how you live. Maybe, maybe it's an inner voice. More likely, honestly, most of us aren't bold enough and courageous enough to solely obey our voice. Most likely, it's, it's sort of a group of people that matter most to you. And their sort of definition of what success is and what coolness is and, and what's acceptable Maybe it's something out there in culture. Maybe it's your, you know, it's your stream on Instagram or whatever that determines. But there's some constraints that you're choosing that are sending you in the direction that you're choosing. Right? Like think of a, whatever, think of a GPS, right? Like a GPS, you could say, um, I don't, I just want to live free. I want to go on a cross-country uh, uh, drive, and I, and I want it to just be totally free. It's like, all right, but if you're going to go cross-country, at some point, you got to go west, right? And so whatever your constraints are, if you're going to try and visit every McDonald's in America, or, or if you're going to try and whatever, do the national parks, something's going to constrain you to go. Whether you get there and how quickly you get there is simply determined by which constraints do you choose to abide by, because you got to go somewhere. you got to make decisions in life. You're going somewhere, Right? And there are constraints that you are choosing. And one of the things that Jesus is saying here is, are you choosing the constraints of your father? Or are you cho choosing the constraints of the enemy? And he says, basically, that's the choice between, are you choosing the right constraints, truth, or are you choosing the wrong constraints, the lie of the enemy? And again, what Jesus is saying, if you would come to me, you finally have the ability to choose the right constraints. You finally have the ability to open the owner's manual and to say, oh, this is what it looked like for a human being to thrive. And so you have to ask, whatever constraints I'm choosing, 
why am I putting trust in the one who's levying those constraints on me? Are those constraints trustworthy, right? Like, is your Instagram feed a fountain of wisdom, a fountain of human flourishing, and a fountain of goodness, capital G? Or is it your friends and, like, weird influencers, right? Like, who then, though, speak over your life in a way that you go, I do need that, and I do need to do that, and I do need that house, and I do need my whatever to look this way, and I do need, I do need, I do need, I do need. Do you hear the constraints? It's making your life feel small and constrained, right? Got to have a master. You're, you're going to choose some constraints. Who's your master? Are you choosing the right constraints? The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying they just keep going, you know what ad hominem is? They just keep going at him as a person. Do not address anything that he's saying. It's just about him. Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You. Okay. They've gone after his sketchy background. Um, we know, right, that Jews and Samaritans have no dealings because if you've been around Jacob's well for any amount of time, you've heard us preach that text a thousand times, right? This is, this is, this is a slur that they're throwing at him. Is they're saying, you know what the Samaritans say about us? The Samaritans say, we don't even worship the right God. You're with them now? Oh, you're a Samaritan, bro? That's who you are. You're saying that the people of God have, have need more than mere belief because we're actually following after the enemy? What if you have a demon? You have a demon. You have a demon. It's interesting because our crowd dynamics in our time is very different. <laughs> That's a joke. They're exactly the same, right? Like, I have a demon, you have a demon. What if you have a demon, right? Like, this is Twitter 2,000 years ago, right? Like, let's not address arguments, facts, reality, truth. Let's just go at each other and say, no, you're one of them. You're, one of the, you're not one of us. You're one of them. And you don't want to be one of them, right? Not talking about arguments, just talking about going at the person and trying to defeat them. Guys, some things never change about human nature. We just put it online now, right? Jesus answered, <laughs> Jesus answered I don't have a demon. <laughs> like, just clarity's sake, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Jews said to him, <laughs> now we know you have a demon. That's crazy talk. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? You feel the irony in that? Oh, now you're greater than Abraham. He is greater than Abraham, right? Like, he says as much in just a second. Uh, are you greater than our father Abraham who died, the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Amazing. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. I'm going to tell you what I know, Jesus is saying. I do know the father. I know what he wants from you. If I held back, I'd be lying but I do know him, I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You know what that's talking about here? Most likely. Most likely what Jesus is saying is not that Abraham had some funky vision of Jesus or not even necessarily that Abraham is now in whatever heaven is at that time. And right before he left, like Jesus dapped him up and he was like, oh, this is great. You're going to do great or whatever. Probably what he's saying is that one of God's promises to Abraham is he said to him, in you, 
and the nation that will come to you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And it says that Abraham heard that, believed it, and then put action behind it. And so Jesus is saying, even thousands and thousands of years ago, Abraham knew that everything about his life and the nation that would come to him would lead to the moment where I'm standing in front of you and somehow you're not seeing it. You're not seeing it. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham, right? They're not dealing with his argument. They're just making fun of him. That's all they're doing at this point. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am Yo. <laughs> uh, some people who are suspicious of Christianity say that Jesus never cl- claims divinity, which is problematic in like 16 different ways. This is the clearest example of Jesus absolutely doing that. He's absolutely claiming the Old Testament sacred, unutterable name of God for himself. He is identifying himself with Yahweh. He has pleaded and pleaded with this crowd. He has said, there are good reasons to trust me. He has said, look at your life. Are you not enslaved to your sin? Are you even able to obey God apart from God's intervention? Look at your life. You're not as free as you think you are. You are more constrained. You are more bound by this world than you realize. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, look, Look at your life. Look at your circumstances. What you got to do is you got to look at me. You got to look at me because I really am sent from the Father. I really am God in flesh. Because the third thing that keeps us from encountering Jesus is it is just too spectacular to imagine that he really was Yahweh in flesh. Sometimes that truth is just too spectacular, either spectacular for us to believe or just too consequential for us to believe. Because if there is a God who cares for your life and created you and sent his son to die for you, yes, that is the death of you as your own God. It means there really is an I am and it ain't you. The I am means you are not, okay? And that's a hard pill for most of us to swallow. And he says, look, You want to get down to brass tacks? Here's the deal. I am. I am and you're not. And that's what I'm offering you. Because the reality is you can live your whole life enslaved to sin and your only hope is for Jesus to come and pay the price to win you out of that, which is what he did on Calvary's cross. He took the full weight of your enslavement and of your sin. He paid the full price of your ransom such that you can now go free. He says, freedom is only found in me because there is a deeper spiritual work. It is not, it is not uh, glorified Christian wellness. It is not a self-help thing. It is not another technique on YouTube. The only hope that you have is spiritual transformation that has to come from outside of you. And that's what I provide, true freedom. I love this, this image. Uh, I'll try and give it quickly. Had the great privilege meeting with one of our external partners this week. Uh, he's, the, he's the head of Hope Chess, which is uh, a ministry that we support in Uganda. And uh, Pastor Joseph was with us, and it was an extraordinary conversation. And he used this analogy that I immediately thought of this text that I was like, ew, that's really, that'll preach. So I'm going to preach it. Is he talked about how uh, in, in villages in Uganda, if you go to someone's house, the expectation is they're either going to feed you while you're there, 
or they're going to send you home with a chicken so that you can eat once you get home. And he said, here's the interesting that happens, thing that happens, is when you send someone with a chicken first, you've got to catch the chicken. Then once you catch the chicken, you tie up its legs because you don't want that chicken to run away while the person is headed home. Then the person has to carry the chicken home. And then the most interesting thing happens is you put the chicken back on the ground. Maybe you're not going to eat it that night. And you clip off of what's been around its legs. Now, I'll give you the analogy because he would want me to honor this. The analogy was what Hope Chest does is they go into communities and do what I'm about to describe. What I want to say is that even that is a picture of something far more spectacular that Jesus does in our life. So here's what happens. You take off what's been binding that chicken. You know what it does? It lays there because it thinks it's still bound. It feels the ties on its legs. So it just lays there for a while. He said sometimes it'll lay there for minutes, even hours, until someone goes over and just flicks it. And as soon as it moves, it suddenly feels its legs under it, and he said, and then it takes off, and then you're never catching that chicken again. What he said was Hope Chest goes into communities that have long been dormant because of all the unrest in Uganda, and, and we provide that flick. I thought, man, that's what Jesus does for us spiritually as well. Right? He comes into our lives, and he says, I know it might feel like you're still bound, but if you have true freedom in me, if I'm your master now, it just feels that way because the reality of your life is you are no longer bound by those things. And he comes and he flicks us with his word and he says, stand up one. Stand up free one. Because you can finally, right? Like that chicken doesn't now have to run around. That chicken gets to run around. That chicken is free again. That chicken can do what chickens want to do, which is not lay on the ground and be shackled, right? They want to run around and be free. This is the gospel. This is good news. Is that right? Let me say this to the Christian among us, follower of Jesus. I know it can feel like we're laying on that floor sometimes. I know it can feel like sometimes we're still bound by certain things in our past, but Jesus says, no, no, no. This is true freedom. You can stand up, and you don't have to stand up, but why wouldn't you stand up? I made you to stand up. I made you to run around and be free. I made you to be one who walks in righteousness, which is what the human machine was actually created for. The designer comes and he doesn't say, do what I made you to do. Do it. Do it now, which is what a lot of us think. And then we disappoint him when we don't do it. He comes to us and he says, no, 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 stand up. No, 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 I'm with you. No, 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 keep going. No, don't lay down. Stand back up. You're not bound by that. Keep going, keep going. And he follows behind us until we find a little bit of rhythm in our step, until we find that walking, crawling becomes walking, and then walking becomes running. And we say, I'm actually free. I'm free. And instead of this bound life, and what you will find is that in Jesus, the constraints are so much wider than the constraints of this world. He's such a better master, and his field is wider that he wants us to play in. And it's actually when we come alive is when we're unbound by him. He says, you are not. I am, and I'm your only hope. And you will miss the encounter with me if you will not simply confess, no, I am serving something. If you will not simply confess, no, I am bound. There are constraints on my life, and I'm not sure they're the right ones. And if I think I am, all the evidence in my life seems to suggest, man, I'm not. But there is one who is a good and righteous master, whose constraints are true freedom, 
who comes into your life and says, I am precisely because you're not. And that's how I accept you and win you to myself. Encounter this Jesus. Make yourself known to him. Be unbound by the unique work that he has done in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the freedom that we do have in you. True freedom. A freedom that sounds weird to our ears because it's a freedom that comes from losing ourselves. Freedom that sounds weird on our ears because it's a freedom that comes from submitting to you. And yet, Lord, this is your offer. This is your invitation to us yet again this morning. God, I pray that if there's anyone in here who has never made that one-time decision to bow the knee and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, I no longer want to be enslaved to sin, but I want to be made free in you. Lord, I pray that they would make that decision today. Lord, if there's a follower of yours who feels bound today by things that you have already freed them in, I pray that they would embrace yet again the extraordinary offer of forgiveness and grace and repentance, even by coming to this table this morning. God, thank you that in you, um, we can know the truth who is a person, and the truth that person will set us free. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.